So uh, as you can see, we're getting closer to, uh, to doing some uh, reconstruction in here. And uh, we're pretty excited about that. We have been talking about this for a long, long time, years really. And uh, with no small amount of debate about how, how that should go and how things should look. And uh, as is always the case, when we, we start changing uh, the facilities of our churches, uh, people have opinions and they share them. One of the... One of the concerns that comes up, has come up, when we have talked about changing this space in particular, is the concern that we still look like a church when it's all done. I can tell you that we're not actively looking to not look like a church <laughs> when we're all done. And we recognize that um, church has come to have a lot of different formats these, these days. So there are a lot of churches that from the outside look like offices or warehouses or storefronts. There are churches on the inside that look like gymnasiums or even some of them look like nightclubs on the inside. And so there's all this anxiety about whether or not uh, we'll still look like a church, which sort of raises the question exactly what does a church look like? And of course, our mind goes to, to church, church buildings. There are a number of different church building styles that we recognize when we're out and about our community uh, that you can tell from a great distance, oh, that's a, that's a church, or at least it was once a church. We can tell by the way it's built, by the way it's structured, by the cross on top, by the steeple, by any number of things that we identify with church. Our mind goes to buildings, which is kind of ironic, right? Because the Christian church existed after the time of Christ, after the ministry of Christ, the Christian church existed for about three centuries without having a specific use building that was the church. Okay? When we think about that in terms of how we think about church in the modern era, we often think that a group of people who calls themselves a church that doesn't have a building yet is like less of a church. Or they haven't achieved real church status yet. But for 300 years, directly after the ministry of Jesus and in response to the ministry of the apostles, there were no church buildings. And they didn't really start to develop church buildings until after the time of Constantine. And that's, that's like a whole other debate. Even when they started to have buildings that were specifically for the use of the church and nothing else, they knew that it was not a church. Because ecclesia, the word that we now translate as church, literally means a gathering of people. It's a gathering. It's an assembly. And so they understood that the church was an assembly of people. The facility in which the assembly met was irrelevant to whether or not they were a church. So it took nearly three centuries for the church to have buildings. It took nearly five centuries for the church to have any stained glass. It took some 1,400 years for the church to have pews. It took 
1,600 years for the church to have steeples and raised pulpits. And, oh, here's a tough one. It took nearly 1,800 years before we introduced the mourner's bench or the altar call. As a matter of fact, there's so much about what we think of as being church that is relatively modern in the grand scheme of things. The, the order of worship, the, the hymnals in that pew back in front of you, the, the, uh, the use of choirs, organs, pianos, all of this happened in the last two to three hundred years of church history. Which means that the bulk of church history, a lot of things that we associate directly with church didn't even exist. In fact, most of the elements we have assumed to define church would be unrecognizable to early Christians. If we could take a, a, a Christian, a disciple from the early church, put them in a time machine, bring them to today and march them in here, they would not recognize most of what they see as being church-like. Moreover, if we told them, come see our church or come go to the church with us, they wouldn't understand what we were talking about. Because the church was not a facility, was not a structure. Now, why do we do this? We have come to describe a church referencing not what a church is in a spiritual sense, but referencing our personal experience of church in the particular cultural context in which we have come of age. I remember as a teenager, I was a uh, youth, youth leader in my, my high school youth group, and I remember we were trying to get permission from our church elders to use some of our youth worship songs in the public worship. Right? So we had these youth work, we'd go to youth rallies and we'd go to camps and, and there, there was always a lot of new worship music and we would have that, we would get excited about some song and we'd want to bring it back and say we want to share this with the rest of the congregation. We'll go to the elders and say we want to do, do some of these worship songs. We're literally told those songs are fine for camp but they're not appropriate for worship. So the compromise, the compromise that we eventually came to was the youth group who would all sit together on a couple of benches up front, not unlike this group here, they would all sit together. We would sing a couple of songs before the opening prayer, because as everybody knows, before the opening prayer, the worship has not officially begun. We cannot worship outside of that that time slot between the opening prayer and the closing prayer, that's the only time of the week we get to worship. So we would sing a couple of our songs before the service began, and, uh, and then they'd have the opening prayer, and that was all fine. Everybody was good with that. The songs that were sanctioned for the actual worship service were, of course, songs that were in the hymnal. And you would think, on the basis of that argument, that the songs in the hymnal were handed to the church directly by Jesus Christ. Well, it turns out, the copyright dates for those songs are all printed in the hymnal. 
And as we're flipping through the hymnal, we're recognizing that all these songs were generally written somewhere in the time frame from 40 years ago to a couple hundred years ago. And so you start thinking about this as a young person. What is it that made that particular time frame sacred? Nothing. What it made it sacred in the minds of those who thought it to be sacred was that in their experience of church, that's what church looked like. That's what church felt like. As we're taking our personal experience of church and making that application. Now, the songs that we were bringing in to sing, they had no particular objection to. In fact, most of those songs were taken directly from Scripture and just set to music. So there's not really much to object to. But worship has become kind of one of the places where this particular drama plays out. And churches have worship wars and worship conflicts. And, and, and I've, I've been doing this long enough that I've kind of seen bits and pieces of all of it. So you can sing these songs that we've sanctioned, but not these songs. And then you can, you can sing those songs, but without any instruments. Or you can sing with instruments, but only a piano, no guitar. Or you can have a piano and a guitar, but no drums. And the list just goes on and on and on. Why? Well, it has everything to do with how the individuals who are making those decisions perceive their personal experience of the church and of worship and all those things, and they're assuming that their common experience of these things is in fact sacred, that is in fact holy. This is a common human error, to mistake our common practices for sacred. But by treating common practices as sacred, we effectively give them priority over Christ and his mission. That's a little bit frightening. So here's kind of how this works. We begin with the church, specifically the church as we have known it. And the mission becomes to grow or preserve the church as we have known it. Let me pull up that next one. There we go. So the mission is to preserve the church as we have known it, which basically means replicating the church as we have known it or, or keeping the church as we have known it alive and, and kicking. That is our mission. And since that seems like a pretty wholesome, good mission, we assume that that mission came from Christ, that that mission has something to do with Christ. Here is the big problem. We are drawing our reference from our personal experience of the church, which means basically my definition of the church didn't start with Jesus. The origin and mission of my church is ultimately me. All right, we'll keep going. Now we're stuck. 
There we go. <laughs> the origin of my church and my mission is ultimately me. It comes from my personal experience, my set of assumptions. If it originates with me, it by definition cannot be originating with Christ. This is problematic. As a matter of fact, it's not an understatement to say that this is extremely dangerous territory. Because in essence, what I'm saying is something that is important to me, that is uh, the mission relative to my understanding of things, is the mission that we will pursue. Now, that by itself for the church is, is a problem. But we layer that on with another problem by presuming to pursue that mission about me in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we've moved from misdirection to blasphemy. This is, this is what we see when uh, Peter is talking to Jesus Jesus is saying, look, they're going to arrest me. They're going to put me to death. Peter takes him aside, actually rebukes Jesus and says, this can't, it's not going down this way. can't happen that way. Jesus responds kind of harshly. He says, get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking like a man. You're thinking in human terms. Or Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I, I have struggled with this over the years. This is a very harsh reaction that Jesus has. And, and what I really struggle with, it, it's not a reaction to pagans, it's not a reaction to sinners, it's, it's not a reaction to atheists, it's a reaction to people who presume to be acting in the name of Jesus. And that's what makes it really frightening, that's what makes it really scary. They are, in fact, serving a mission that meets their expectations, but doesn't meet the expectations of Jesus. And yet they're pursuing that mission in the name of Jesus. That's blasphemous. And Jesus says to them, I don't even know who you are. It's dangerous. And that's why we have spent considerable time in this series already trying to define the mission and understand the mission and understand how we can recognize the mission when it's in front of us. The most important principle of all the principles that we've considered is the first principle. Jesus is the source of the mission. When the church, as we have known it, is the starting point for our mission, we tend to replicate or perpetuate the church as we have known it, regardless of whether or not it fulfills the mission of Jesus. If you want to be on the right mission, you need to have the right source. The source is not the church. The source is Jesus. We consider the commands, the teachings, the example, the ministry of Jesus, and mission needs to flow from that point. And mission principle number two, the mission is the purpose of the church. It is the reason that we exist, the only reason that we exist. 
And we cannot fulfill our mission in Christ by looking like the church as we have known it. We only fulfill the mission of Christ by being a church that looks like Christ, that looks like Jesus. The church that looks to itself for its mission will inevitably make a mission of itself, and it will elevate its practices and its traditions to the level of sacred. But the church that's following Jesus adapts common practice to suit the needs of the mission. In other words, as much as that might frustrate us, all of our sacred cows are loaded up and headed for slaughter. The things that we have held to define the church very often don't have all that much to do with what the church really is. And so if we take the buildings and the budgets and the pews and the pulpits and the stained glass and the steeples and we cast them all into the fire never to return, do we still in fact have a church? Because if we don't, we never did. Those things cannot ever define the church because they're all of human origin. They all come from us. They don't, they don't come from Jesus. Now, I, let me be clear. They're not necessarily wrong. Not necessarily bad. But at the very most, they are tools that we can use in order to serve the true mission that is in Jesus Christ. And they're only tools as long as they work. They stop functioning, it's time to kick them to the curb. In fact, in its common practice, the church is always changing. There are some things that don't. There is a thing that is the church, but its identity is not in these things. Its identity is in Christ. We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months trying to define the mission, let's sit, spend some time this morning considering what makes the church its churchiest church self. It's an important question because the challenge for the church in every age is to adapt itself to the context of its mission without surrendering it's Christ-centered identity. How do we do the work without losing our true identity in Christ? There are things about being the church that are non-negotiable. They're just not furniture. They're not programs. They're not policies. They're not bylaws. And it's certainly not the way we've always done it. These should be the first things we're prepared to jettison whenever it serves the mission of Christ to do so. The mission field is always changing, and so the church is always changing. This has become particularly true today in our cultural context. This uh, Honor Club formal that we're working on is based on a ministry that uh, my family was involved in 
a decade ago in Colorado. But we have found as we've prepared for it that we've had to change most of the parameters of what we're doing. You know why? Ten years ago, we had no idea that we would be addressing the situations that we're addressing now. Yeah, ten years ago, we were trying to teach boys and girls some social graces and how to show respect to themselves and respect to others in a social context. Little did we know that ten years later, we'd have to help them define what boys and girls are. That's how much a cultural context has changed in a decade. The church has to adapt itself to meet these incredible needs that the darkness of the culture is creating. To adapt, to be effective in our mission, common things cannot be held to be sacred. But it is equally important that we not allow sacred things to be held as common. That we not lose the distinctiveness of who we are as a people in Christ. That we not allow holy and righteous things to be set aside in order to serve expediency. So what is the church? In its, in its truest form, in its most sacred form, how do we define it? Paul calls the church, in, in multiple passages, he calls the church the body of Christ, the incarnation of his purpose, the hands and feet of his ministry. But even that, we kind of reverse engineer sometimes. We start with the assumption that we are the church, and then whatever it is that we do, that's what churches do. But let's back that up. What does it really mean for us to be the body of Christ? Let's look at one of those passages from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We'll start here. The church is a fellowship of disciples, which means first that the church is in fact people. It is in fact people. It is flesh and blood rather than bricks and mortar. But it is not just any people, but called people. See, the church is literally defined by discipleship. It is entirely, exclusively comprised of people who have accepted the call to follow Jesus. Meaning, in Jesus' words, they have denied themselves, they have taken up their cross, and they are following Jesus. Now, among these disciples, Paul urges unity. Think about the things all the things that you have shared in common. You have one Lord, one Spirit, one body, one baptism. But at the top of the passage, you have a calling. And it is one calling. It's not a calling for disciples and a calling for Christians. That's a distinction we made much later. There's only the calling of disciples. The church 
is an assembly of disciples. Disciples who are deeply united in their shared bond of following Jesus. It goes on in verse 7, But to each one of you grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly region? He who has descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What is this about? Well, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of Christ. Within this kingdom, we may have unique roles, what Paul calls grace apportioned, which basically means you might have a unique service to offer, a unique contribution, unique gifts, unique ministries as an individual disciple. But we all remain united in the ultimate truth that Jesus is our King ascended to the throne. If we are truly a fellowship of disciples, then one of the many truths that unites us is that we are all subjects of Christ the King. He reigns over us. He reigns in us. Our perfection as a kingdom is still pending. And it will be until Christ returns. But for the world... The church is meant to be an outpost, a little pocket of kingdom, a little pocket of light in the midst of the darkness, a place where the ideals of kingdom, where the values of kingdom, and where the justice of the kingdom is upheld. Because all of the followers have placed themselves under the reign of the king. Verse 11, he says, So Christ gave himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's a couple of things going on here. First of all, the church is an agent of good works. Christ supplies unique gifts and spiritual leadership and why does Paul say he does this? In order to equip us for service. The New Testament is completely unapologetic about calling us to good works. And yet the reality is every time in the church we start talking about good works to which we are called, somebody feels compelled to bring up the point that we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace. And this is true. There is nothing you have done, nothing that you ever will do, that will cause you to deserve the redemption that you have in Christ. But can we stop reducing the conversation to an equation of what we do or don't have to do in order to get our backside into heaven? That's not the point. The point is that Christ has called us into a higher purpose. He has called us to better things. So we don't serve the things that we used to. We serve new and better things. We serve kingdom things because those things are superior to all the brokenness and all the garbage that we left behind. A 
as Paul himself says in Ephesians 2, we have been created in Jesus for good works, which were prepared in advance for us to do. And I want to point out that the biblical use of the word good is really pretty narrow. It's not anything that tickles your fancy as being a good idea. Good, in the context of Scripture, literally means godly. Jesus himself says, only God is good. We're talking about good works. We're not just talking about nice things that community groups might do. We're not just talking about general charity. We're talking about godly things. You have been called to do godly things as you make your journey through this world. These things will have meaning and consequence beyond anything that we can imagine. And secondly here, there's an indication in this passage about the church as a priesthood of believers, borrowing that concept from 1 Peter 2. Paul says the objective of all of this service is so that all of us will achieve unity of faith, knowledge of the Son, maturity, and the full measure of Christ. In other words, spiritual growth, maturation, sanctification, holiness, wholeness, fullness, these are not the realm of a few, they are the realm of all. Service to the kingdom takes various forms, but we are all essentially called to intercede for the world as priests between Christ and humanity. There's no distinction between clergy and laity here. And none of us have the luxury of not growing in our relationship with Christ. Your presence, your participation, your spiritual formation in the body of Christ is critical to the mission. And don't let the enemy tell you anything otherwise. Verse 14, he continues, and will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The church, and here we're borrowing from 2 Corinthians 5, the church is an ambassador of the gospel. Paul basically calls us here in Ephesians 4 to be completely grounded in Christ so that we will be able to distinguish between what is true hope and what is false hope. And the core of that true hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Now we're going to spend some time here in the coming weeks talking more about what that means. But understand this for now. Christ the King reigns in order to make everything new. You and I and the whole world. In order to make everything new, and to restore everything that sin and death have broken. In the broader sense, the church is a curator 
of the truth. In this world of growing darkness and deceit, Jesus is our source of light. And again, in the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna to be brave, and we're going to take a deep dive, and we're going to consider the darkness of our particular mission field, and we're going to talk about what it means to speak truth in love into that darkness. But as curators of this great truth, we have a stewardship, we have a responsibility to seek that truth, to know it, to learn it, to apply it, and to appreciate which aspects of that truth desperately need to be put on display in order to bring healing to the world around us. The culture has become skilled at casting us in the light of what we are against. As curators of the truth of God, we need to learn to express once again the glorious things that we are for. And so you consider our calendar just coming up here. You know, why do, why do we have a Valentine banquet? Well, because we are for godly courtship and marriage. Why do we have men's conferences and women's conferences? Because we are for godly masculinity and femininity. Why do we have an honor club formal? Because we are for teaching our young people honor, respect, and character. Now, it's not that hard to understand why the human heart gets fixated on common things when we're trying to define the church. Because the true definition of the church, the the calling of the church is so awesome, it's so intimidating, it's so overwhelming, that it requires of us a radical devotion to Jesus Christ, whom we recognize as the only way that mission could possibly be empowered. But here's the thing, if we can live for Christ, if we can work together in his kingdom, if we can embrace our unity in common cause and calling and mission, and if we can embrace the unique gifts and the works that have been apportioned by grace to each one of us, then we are the body of Christ, then we are the church. And beyond that, it really doesn't matter what else happens.